Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gelb, host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Have your eyes ever felt like there was something in it? Did they ever feel sandy? Did they ever tear? Well, you may be suffering from dry eye. Today, we have a world expert in dry eye, ophthalmologist, PhD, Dr. Harvey Fishman. Dr. Harvey Fishman got his PhD from the Department of Chemistry at Stanford in the area of lasers and neuroscience. He has his medical degree from Stanford and he did his residency in ophthalmology at Stanford. He was awarded one of the first Stanford University BioX grants for his work on the artificial synapse chip. He's published over 30 research papers. He's an inventor. He's been on many TV shows. He has many famous patients. He's a great lecturer. I've heard him lecture many times, and he's also just a great guy. So Dr. Fishman, thank you for joining us today. Kerry, great to see you. Thank you so much for the invite. This is an incredibly exciting time for you with Open Your Eyes. I'm really excited about your upcoming film and everything that you're doing for the, for the field. I mean, you're really, it's amazing how, how much you're contributing to, uh, to people's knowledge and, and everything that you're doing. I just, I mean, it's just, it's wonderful. I mean, this is, this is truly what, what uh, you know, helping people and helping patients is about. And we have some exciting news. We're starting a web show together. Tell us about that. Yeah, we're doing this great web show. You know, you and I decided, we met a couple of years ago, we really hit it off and we said, hey, let's, let's do a show where we discuss basic eye disease, anything eye, everything eye, doesn't matter. It could be sunglasses, it could be, you know, blue light toxicity or not, anything, circadian rhythm, how the eye works, you know, pink eye. Uh, and all that stuff, we said, hey, why don't we do this in a web-based format that we can really explain, like we're talking to patients, you know, like as opposed to like two doctor-doctor talks, which are, which are exciting, you know, and good for doctors, but there's nothing out there that's that, you know, where you have two, you know, very passionate and experienced experts in, in our own areas where you can really, we can really talk to the patients. And, you know, my patients all the time are always asking me, is there, is there some place I can listen, you know, to you? or to understand more about what you're saying. And so this is like an opportunity for us to, with this web uh, program, this web show called, uh, you know, Four Eyes. Um, and here's, here's my prop just to, 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 is it this kind of four eyes? Maybe, no, actually it's, it's, your, it's all four of us, all, all four of our eyes. But the reality is that we wanna have something where we can really talk to somebody 
like you're talking to your patient, like you're in your chair and you're with, you know, with patients in the chairs, you're, you're talking to them. And that's what I'm excited about. It's going to be a lot of fun. We have the full circle covered because I'm an optometrist and you're an ophthalmologist in addition to being a PhD. So we cover the whole circle. So sometimes we're kind of in our silos as an ophthalmologist and we just concentrate on one area or as an optometrist, but together we kind of have all the bases covered. That's right. And then of course I'll throw in my little joke about having that PhD in physical chemistry. And I feel like an op and I got that first. So it's like I'm a physical chemist trapped in an ophthalmologist body. So we actually have the whole science aspect. So if you want to talk about quantum chemistry and physics and talk about how light interacts and single molecule detection, we can get into that too. But obviously that, that might be a little too much for, uh, for people to, to, to stomach. They might think that's pretty bad and not fun. <laughs> Oh, well, well, today we're going to talk about dry eyes. You know, a number yeah. of years ago, uh, on a serious note, uh, for the Fox News fans out there, Shannon Bream, who's a yeah. Fox newscaster, if you ever heard of her, she almost committed suicide. She was in so much pain because right. from her eyes being in so much pain from being so dry, we would wake up, she would wake her up in the middle of the night. I mean, she might have had ABMD or some other things, but right. it would wake her up in the middle of the night and she was in so much pain. Can you talk a little bit about the symptoms of dry eye and maybe the spectrum of symptoms? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I mean, you know, dry eye is such an interesting disease because there are so many subtypes of it, Carrie. And um, one of the challenges of dry disease is that we really haven't done a good job of, of quantitatively met, like what different types of disease is with dry eye. And I think that the biggest problem is it's like, you know, a lot of dry disease, you know, it can be, can be systemically driven, a lot of it. And like, for instance, you know, when you talk, when you think about dry eye, I actually think about dry eye as the three-legged, the three-legged stool of dry eye. In fact, I have a poster in my office about that. You know, we talk about the three components of, of the, the aspects of your eye that keep you lubricated, the tears and the oil that come out of the eyelid margin, and then the eyelid margin, not only from the standpoint of the surface roughness of the eyelid margin, but also the, the, your blink and so forth, and your anatomy. And I mean, so dry eye can show up, in, to answer your question, dry eye can show up in so many different, can show, and the symptoms can, be, can show up in so many different ways. Like, you know, in a very dramatic case, like in some of the patients who have had refractive surgery, they can be, when you cut the corneal nerves, they can grow back, in a very ab abnormal, aberrant way. And it can be like literally like having shards of glass in your eye every morning for the rest of your life. And that sort of neuropathic, they call that neuropathic or corneal neuropathy. That kind of pain is just excruciating. Um, it's like, it's very similar to the kind of pain that you get with, um, you know, some of the phantom limb syndrome. So some of the soldiers and other people have lost their limbs. And then they still they feel excruciating pain from from their missing limb, even though there's nothing there. And that's because the nerves grew back incorrectly. And so, with with respect to that case you're talking about, a lot of the refractive LASIK and even some of the new patients with smile, the new smile technique, you're not you're not you know almost any kind of cut into the eye. It doesn't matter whether it's a you know refractive laser. It's mostly refractive laser surgery, but you can get it with anything. You can get it with um, you can get it with all sorts of corneal injuries and you can have it with 
uh, pretty much any kind of an insult to the eye. But the thing is, it's like it's a it, it's a it, this pain syndrome is extremely bad. It's just it's like 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 taking a micro needle and stabbing you in the eye multiple times every day continuously with no relief. And that's obviously the very very bad example of dry eye. Um, the vast majority of people with dry eye have like a little grittiness where they they feel like a foreign body sensation or they feel like something's there. And that's another type of um, that's another you know form of dry eye. And then, you know, it, you can be burning, you can get burning sensation where, and that has to do with, and we, from, in my perspective, about the, the, the salty, your tears can be kind of salty. It can be almost like going into the, the water, to the, uh, to the ocean, how, how your eyes burn when you get out of the ocean, um, similar kind of um, symptoms. And then, and then of course you can have other symptoms. Like if you can actually have symptoms of like light sensitivity, where the only thing you have is light sensitivity from, from dry eye. And then the other thing that's really fascinating is that what was fascinating about dry eye, as, as I mentioned, there's so many different varieties of it, Carrie, um, and there's so many different subtypes. So it's very difficult, and, and often you'll have you know multiple versions of the same thing. So you can actually have you know you're not just limited to one, and it's it's such a complex variety of different anatomies and you know and and body types that, that give you dry. So you can have all these different aspects of, but what's you know you know, you can also have where they have no symptoms at all. So I talked about that one patient who has the, uh, the it's like having needles in your eye every day for the rest of your life. And then there are other patients who have exactly the same, you know, maybe their, their cornea looks exactly the same, but the, the cornea is not, um, that's my son in the background, apologize for that. <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, the, uh, the cornea <clears throat> can have all the signs because you look at the you look at the the cornea, it looks all looks like the sign, but in fact they have no symptoms. And the only symptom that they have, they don't have no pain, they have nothing else. The only thing that they have actually is that their their vision is decreased, and that's because of the cornea can be irregular. And so it's super interesting. Um, it's super interesting what like how the disease kind of unfolds. Yeah, the cornea is the front part of the eye. Now, what? What percentage, how many people in the, in the United States you think have, suffer from some form of dry eye? You know, the, the numbers, again, it's such a difficult, um, you know, number because, you know, uh, there's a lot of dry eye that's undiagnosed. And then when dry eye is sometimes diagnosed, it's incorrectly diagnosed. Like, that, you know, they look at something that's not, you know, um, it's not particularly, you know, well characterized. But, you know, I've read, and it also depends on the age group. So in people, let's just say people older than the age of 30, for instance, 30 or 40, the number of people who have dry eye disease has been, you know, categorized as anywhere between 10 to 40 percent. Um, and it also depends on the region of the country you live in. It depends on your anatomy. I mean, there's all these different aspects. Um, you know, so, uh, and even kids now are having more and more dry eye disease. But it's a fairly it's a fairly large chunk of our population, and and as I said, it depends on there's a, there's a whole severity. You know what's really fascinating, Carrie, um, is that uh, you know high school kids who are in Accutane, you know about Accutane, with where they take it for acne. Hey, their their face looks great, but they destroy the glands in their lid margin. And so you see a whole bunch of kids right now who are getting who are going to have a lifelong issue with dry eye disease. They don't know it. Because they, they're, you know, because they haven't, they don't have years and years of inflammation because of the lack of oils in their in their lids. But over time, they're going to get, you know, they're going to have problems. <laughs> so it's interesting because 
you know, kids are starting to get dry eye. And then, of course, you know, I hate to bring this up, but screen time is just a disaster. And a lot of that has to do with the blink, that people are so focused on their screens and they don't blink their eyes or they have incomplete blinks. And you add that to the fact that maybe their oil production is slightly low. So it gets, as you can see, it gets very complex, but it's a lot, large number, way over 5%. Sometimes some numbers have been as much as, as high as 40% of the population. And then as you get to different age groups, it, it can be very high. In, in, the, in the age group older than 60 or 70, um, it can be maybe 50% or more a patient. And these numbers, um, you know, as I said, they're just sort of general numbers. I can't cite specific papers on this because I've read papers where it's across the board. So you mentioned LASIK before, and there's a possibility to have severe eye pain after LASIK. Most people do well with LASIK, but yes. those patients that are in severe eye pain, what could be done for them? It's a real complex position uh, that you're in because it's a combination of um, both pain. It's, 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 there's a lot of psychological, you know, issues um, and emotional issues. And so you have to bring in a whole variety of people to, to work with people on that. Um, one of the things to, to answer your question is that there can be a lot you can do with this. Um, first of all, the most important thing is recognizing what you have. Because, I mean, I'm not trying to be, you know, the, you know, if you're a busy refractive surgeon doing 20,000 cases a year or whatever, um, you know, it's not one of these things that you're, you know, you're so busy that, you know, you may not hear the symptoms. So first, the most important thing is when they, if you have to identify it. And um, the, the, where are you going, Carrie? <laughs> well, they shut off the printer. There you go. Um, but what happens is when you have the, um, when, you, when you have to identify it, and then when you identify the, the, that this, this person actually has, and one of the classic, one of the classic um, uh, signs is what we call pain without stain. And there's this concept where when, when we put different um, chemical, you know, different uh, things in your eye, such as fluorescent, I'm saying things, we put, you know, a, a, a drug in your eye called fluorescein. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a molecule that stains the cornea. So people who have, who have corneal disease or problems with their cornea, um, you often see the cornea will light up with this particular dye, fluorescein, as you know. And um, what's fascinating is that a lot of patients, so when you look at the cornea and you do all these objective tests, um, you see nothing and they still have pain. And that's what this, 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 pain without stain concept comes in. Um, but for these patients, you have to take a more holistic approach. You have to look at aspect, everything that aspect, everything that's actually driving pain into their pain center. So in some respects, the center of their brain, this area called the trigeminal ganglion, um, and there's also thalamic areas and the thalamus in your brain, uh, the, thal the thalamic structures. This is sort of this pain you know, center, sort of a super highway, sort of the Every, all these pain fibers from your face, your nose, your ears, your skin, and certainly your eyes, your eyelids, and your eye margins, all of these um, go, and your scalp, for instance, it all goes into the center part of your brain in the trigeminal ganglion area. And what happens, we, what we know from animal models is that they actually reorganize, the, the nerves actually change their structures, and the connections really change their structures when you have a pain system. And so, it's very complex to sort of unravel that 
you can work on it. You can do it. Um, one of the things I do in my practice is I use every, one of the things I do is like every aspect of, of potential pain fiber that goes into the, into the center of your head, you have to minimize it. You have to treat it. So with a LASIK patient or a refractive surgery patient that has this pain syndrome, you know, what I do in my practice is we, we, we use every single modality to reduce the, the, the nerve input into the brain. So we do things like serum tears. We, we do things like, you know, obviously working on the, on the microbiome of the gut through a variety of different diets, anti-inflammatory diets that we work with, um, that I work with patients on. And I work with other holistic doctors and naturopathic doctors who, who uh, really specialize in that area. And then, you know, we can, there are specialized contact lenses, such as scleral contact lenses that you can, that you can use that reduces pain. We, we work with light and light sensitivity um, and certain colors of light can, can, can set people off. And I try to, we work with different areas um, to try to minimize that. And then, you know, I, other, I draw in other aspects of, of um, you know, of, of medicine. Like for instance, we know that the acupuncture uh, is a great way uh, for some patients to treat some of their pain syndrome. And uh, we, it's really a black box. I mean, a lot of the Chinese medicine that has evolved, uh, you know, really does work. Um, but, you know, it's not clear that we have, the, we have the intellectual capacity at this point as scientists to really know what we're doing. But I'll, I'll draw in acupuncture, uh, um, and I'll have them do acupuncture. And then in addition to that, I will also draw and pay, I will, you know, as I said, I work on the holistic side um, of, the, of, the, of the anti-inflammatory diet and the nutrition side to get people to improve that. And finally, one of the things that, um, you know, I find, you know, very, very helpful um, with these patients with, with uh, corneal neuropathy is I, I really, I think that, you know, just kind of teaching people and explaining to them what is going on because there's a lot of anxiety and that's a big part of why people have this i mean if you wake up with pain and you, you see like four or five cornea specialists and they say well here's some artificial tears here's some you know restasis or lithograph here's a little steroid and that's it and doesn't work you know you know they get very depressed and very anxious and so i think a large and an extremely important part of of working with people with dry eye disease is to is to really explain and teach them and show them what the mechanisms are. And I think that actually that itself goes a long way towards un undoing this, um, undoing this. You know, it's interesting, Carrie, a couple of years ago, when I was a medical student at Stanford, you know, you have to go through all the different rotations. And I did a rotation in orthopedics. And uh, one of the um, lecturers made a really good, he, was, he had done this interesting uh, study on gunshot wounds. I don't know if I ever told you about this, but it's a pretty interesting, um, Study. They looked at gunshot wounds in different patients, and they found that if your gunshot wound was in the line of duty, if you were a policeman or an officer or whatever, or whatever, and you were trying to, you know, or military, and you were going to, uh, and you got shot, uh, and then they looked at patients with who were in a robbery, or they were they were assaulted, or was in that, you know, they were in a different situation. You can look at the exact same uh, wound. And the patients who were in a, you know, who were assaulted or, or trauma, they tended to be, they tended to have this pain syndrome, whereas the other people didn't. And so the psychological and how your brain interprets this pain is incredibly important. I mean, let's, let's understand 
that the pain that comes into your brain from your eye, I mean, it's an interpretation. It's not, and I don't mean to say it's not real. It's like, I mean, you then you get into this like existential discussion of what is, what is real and what is existence and what is your, you know, what are you, you know, how do we perceive life? What are our perceptions of life? This is getting a little too heady for, for a podcast, but, but, you know, the reality is that like, what is, what is, you know, what is life? And, 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 and when you, and what is pain, excuse me. And when, and when you think about it, it's just a perception of input coming into your brain and you have to, you have to do what you can to sort of switch that. So that's a very long answer, but that's, you, you have to look at this whole system holistically. It takes some time, but I've had a lot of patients, a lot of patients who have had LASIK trauma um, and other trauma where we can get them to feel very comfortable. And, you know, and again, you may not, it's kind of like a bad back. You may always live with a bad back, but it, it may not inhibit your life. You know, you, you know what I'm saying? How do you compare this to like trigeminal neuralgia? Very similar. Very similar. I mean, it's exactly the same mechanism. That's a great point. So when you talk about trigeminal neuralgia, it again, it's the pain syndrome of the trigeminal ganglion. The trigeminal neuralgia, uh, you know, often you can get that from herpes. Or you can get it from like, you know, zoster, you can get it from shingles, sorry, uh, shingles, which is, you know, where you get the, the bumps on your face. It's, it's, a, it's an outbreak of, of your previous chickenpox virus that then comes out. And you can also get it from, you know, from jaw surgery, or you can have it from, you know, you can have TMJ, for instance, uh, that can cause it. But it's exactly the same uh, concept that you have this pain syndrome that's emanating and, and or that pain syndrome, which is in the trigeminal ganglion. And it, it, you know, and that is a very similar, great analogy to what happens to patients who have LASIK pain. You know, patients sometimes go in for cosmetic surgery. They have a brow lift, and then they have an incomplete blink, and then right. starts drying out. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I have a lot of patients who've had that problem. In fact, I just had a patient. I would say worked with a patient about six months ago. Um, and this patient had a, a blepharoplasty, lower and upper, and ended up, uh, you know, had a, you know, because of the surgery, and the surgery was fine. There was no complications of the surgery. It was perfectly good surgery. But what happened is that their blink mechanism really changed. And, and often what happens is when you, I mean, I have a little wrinkle here. I don't know if you can see it. <laughs> and I wish I didn't have these wrinkles. And if I had blepharoplasty, where I took out the extra skin there, um, you know, I'm going to look better. But my lower lid might be a little retracted, and my upper lid, if I do an upper lid blepharoplasty, my upper lid um, may have a compromised blink. And, and what happens is a lot of the patients, it's not just a compromised blink during the day, which is called blink lag ophthalmos, but you can also have very significant blink uh, overnight lag ophthalmos, where, where the eye is, um, you know, incompletely closed. You, have, you don't have a good seal. And, and the other thing that happens, and so what happens is it desiccates and dries out at night, but the other thing that's really fascinating, which I'm working on doing, um, I'm kind of doing like a little mini research area in my own office, which is the micro environment of the eye, that there are different areas of the eye that, um, you know, that can be affected and it can really affect dry eyes. So for instance, after blepharoplasty, you can get like swelling of the white part of the eye, the conjunctiva. And one of my, one of the things that I think is going on a lot with a lot of patients and I think it's very un, it's un, un, um, it's not recognized particularly well is this thing called conjunctiva cholesis which is a little bit like if you think about belly fat rolling you know you know after you got a, a nice good rib dinner like we well, like we <laughs> like we shouldn't be doing 
But if you're eating a big deal and you can get a little heavy and that fat's kind of rolling over your belly, you know, over the, uh, over the, over the, over your belt, they have that same kind of thing in your eye where you have the conjunctiva kind of rolled over the lid. And, and there's been a lot of discussion about that conjunctiva. The conjunctiva, the clear part over the white part or, or when you, when you pull down over here, the, the covering. Yeah, the, yeah, the clear part, when you get pink eye, what becomes pink, um, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, when it, when that conjunctiva gets, uh, when, what happens is that conjunctiva actually swells up. And that conjunctiva, that fleshy, clear stuff that's on your eye, is supposed to stay on the, excuse me, supposed to stay on the white part of the eye. It's not supposed to be, <laughs> it's not supposed to be separated. And what happens in, often in blepharoplasty is that conjunctiva actually separates and gets loose and it could flop over your lid margin. And so what I think is going on actually a lot of times, it's not necessarily, there has been a lot of discussion that that itself causes irritation and dry eye disease. I actually think that it's, it's actually, hysterically, what it does is hysterically, it hinders, hysterically hinders, meaning that it's forced, there's a little area underneath, right at the lid margin where your tears collect. Now, if you have this fleshy, you know, belly fat <laughs> rolling over your belt, it's pushing the tears out, then at nighttime, there's no place for the tears to, to collect. And if you have a slight opening of your eyelid margin at night, then you're, it's, gonna, it's going to dry out. So that is a big problem that I see with blepharoplasty is that the patients have this, they, they wake up and you can really clearly see it on, on, uh, on, on the exam that you and I do. So that's, I think, a reason that people get this, this problem after cosmetic surgery. Now, again, that can be fixed. Now, interestingly enough, I actually saw, as I said, I had a patient, and I have a, a number of patients who've had that, and then ended up with, um, ended up with a uh, with a pain syndrome, just like the LASIK patients. So, you know, you don't have to have LASIK to have that same pain syndrome, because if you irritate the eye enough, then you can set up this pain pathway, which we really don't understand particularly well, but when you set up this pain pathway that is hard to, that you have to undo. And remember, even if the cornea gets better, it's the it's the central brain, it's the trigeminal ganglion that has to un, you have to undo that. You have to un, you have to un, you have to you have to change those connections. You have to change those synaptic. There's like synaptic and nerve remodeling that goes on in the brain, and you have to remodel. And that's really the job of what you do as a dry eye specialist in those patients is that you work really hard with the patient to get them to to un to get those pathways which are um, which have been set because of the pain syndrome, you need to to turn them back. You got to unwind, you know, unwind it, so to speak. So to go back to uh, eyelid surgery, uh, yeah. Browlet, a lot of people, you know, as they're getting older, they don't like that their eyelid is drooping, or yeah. they don't like puffiness of the eyes, or they the dermatosalaces where the top part is going yeah. over the inside right. part. How do you decide, as a patient out there, decide if they're a good candidate to have eyelid surgery? Who's a good candidate? Should and what are the what? Who should they see for something like this? Well, you know that's a great question. I mean, so there's there's a cut. You know, there's there's sort of two. It's a spectrum. There are some patients who literally have so much uh, dermatic colitis and so much hooding, the skin kind of droops, and it actually um, literally affects their visual field. And so, you know, there's, there's 
patients like that where it, you know, it really affects your vision because you, your eyes are um, not completely open. You don't get as much light in there. And um, the other thing that goes along with that often is brow ptosis. So not only do you have the lids get loose and kind of, you know, uh, extra skin, but the for you know, the skin on your, uh, the muscles that control the, um, uh, that keep your, your brow up. And a lot of people not only get droopy eyelids, they get droopy brows. And so what often happens is that they, people use, like they use their brows to lift up their eyes and they get in this state they, all day with their eyes kind of, you know, in this kind of hyper, hyper tense state to try to see better. And so, you know, you can get headaches from extra skin, you know, above your eyes because of that tension and so forth. And so you can actually do in our offices, as you know, we can do visual fields and we can do something where we like take the lid and we, we tape it up. We do a visual field before and after taping. And then you can see what kind of improvement you get. And that's kind of like the medical standard of care. Now, I will say that it's very difficult to get insurance companies and certainly Medicare to, to even pay for that kind of stuff because um, of, the, of, of what's going on in our insurance uh, you know, world. And we're definitely not going to get into that in this conversation. Um, but, uh, but, you know, just because they don't pay for it doesn't mean you don't need it. And so you can get a visual field. And um, if it does look like you have some extra skin there that's obscuring your your vision and your visual field, you know, you can get a you get the, that that's an indication. And of course, there are cosmetic reasons. I mean, when you when you have that extra skin, you look a little older, you look a little more sleepy, and you can you know it's amazing actually if you get a blepharoplasty how that can really lighten up your appearance. Um, you'd be surprised, you know, you see patients and they hey, what did you do? Would you you know you don't you don't quite know what they did. Oh, I got a blepharoplasty, and then you're like ah okay. You look better. So <clears throat> the reality is that could be very helpful. Um, the type of surgeon, I, you know, as an ophthalmologist, right, I'm very partial to ophthalmologists, uh, a subspecialty of ophthalmology doing your surgery. Um, there's an area of ophthalmology called oculoplastic surgery. So it's a special fellowship that ophthalmologists do after you become an ophthalmologist and you do an additional two years where you specialize in the, in the eyeball and the eyelid. And, and the oculoplastic surgeons, you know, are really specialized. And so, you know, if you have an opportunity to see an oculoplastic surgeon, you know, that would be my first choice for somebody having blepharoplasty. But, um, you know, in terms of, and by the way, they're very good because they're ophthalmologists, they're very good at recognizing complications that may happen. And I'm not saying complications of the surgery. I'm just saying, I'm not saying a surgical complication. I'm saying, you know, you might get dry eye, like we talked about after blepharoplasty. And if you have an ophthalmologist who is doing the surgery, then, you you know, there, there's a good chance that, you know, it can be dealt with on a more timely basis. Now, the one thing that happens, that, you know, but that's, that you're not limited. I mean, there are plastic surgeons who do blepharoplasties. Um, and there are some excellent plastic surgeons who are not ophthalmologists who also you know, they really know what they're doing. And so, you know, plastic surgeons can do it. Um, there are some ear, nose, and throat doctors, ENT, believe it or not, they do, some of them do reconstructive surgery around the face and the jaw and the eye and the nose, and they also do blepharoplasty. Um, so those are the main groups that I would consider. I wouldn't, um, you know, I think that, and of course there are, you know, there are some other people who, you know, probably get into it, but I, I would focus, if you were a patient, to focus on first an oculoplastic surgeon with an ophthalmology residency, second, maybe plastics and ENT. Since we're going down this rabbit hole with plastic surgery. We are definitely going down a rabbit hole, we, but that's okay. But that's what this is all about. That's why, that's why it works. It works for us. People sometimes use fillers 
for yeah. around their nose. Can there have been people that have actually gone blind from these fillers? Can you talk you about know, that's that? A, that's definitely a rabbit hole. Thank you. Yeah, that's but it's interesting. <laughs> and I'm totally cool. I don't want anybody watching this going blind. <laughs> I know absolutely. I mean, it, so you know, it's really awful because what happens is when you inject anything around the eyes, you can actually inject into uh, a vet of 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 basically an artery, and you can get this artery. Uh, you can actually get this artery to connect to the back of your eye, to the ophthalmic nerve. So there are absolutely um, cases of getting, of, of especially fat. Like, there, like a lot of people put dermal fat in the skin around the face. And there have been a, quite a number of people blinded from, uh, from fat um, injections. Um, I've, I've heard of injecting, I've heard of blindness with, with the fillers, even, even, even non-fat, you know, like, collagen type fillers people have gone blind because little tiny particulates actually retrograde in the vet in the vessels get into an artery and then and it actually cause essentially carry what uh described to our listeners that you know essentially a heart attack of the um you know of the optic nerve or the eye you can go blind because the blood supply that supplies the eye parts of the eye parts of the retina parts of the optic nerve can actually have a clot in it. So it's like, can you have a clot in that? And then you go blind in those areas. Um, you know, interestingly enough, that when one of the things that I am very interested in in my research in my office is so is the chalasia size. And there are a lot of doctors who actually will inject steroids into the eyelid margin to, to continue down this rabbit hole. Uh, but you can you can inject steroids into the eye lid margin to control the inflammation. And you can use there's a there's a there's a steroid called Kenalon or triamcinolone is another name for it. And this kennel, this 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 uh, steroid actually has, has tiny little particles in it. And the idea is when you inject it into the lid, those particles sit there, and it's kind of like a, a depot, like a like a drug this drug release system. It just sits in your lid or your face, or whatever, and it lowers the inflammation. But but those little particles can also go back and blind people. So when I have a patient who comes in with chalazium, chalazium styes, that kind of thing, I really try not to, I try to, I try to get them not to do steroids. I do very little. I, don't, I try not, I try to do as few steroid injections as possible because this is a risk and, you know, you don't want anybody going blind because, you know, they have a little sty on their eye. But you're right. Anything that you inject in the lids, around the eyes, your face, uh, I've even heard of like a, a guy who had uh, actually, you know, there, you can do this technique where you put in serum tier serum uh, like prgf or, or prp platelet rich plasma and i've even heard of injections in the plasma in the face that um can cause blindness because it again retrograde goes back and then causes you know i've actually seen also necrosis where they're holding all the skin i've seen cases of necrosis where the skin basically becomes necrotic because a blood clot prevents the blood from supplying the blood to the forehead. And I've seen problems like that. So, you know, you know, unfortunately everything we do in medicine can cause problems and, and it's unfortunate. You have to, you know, really try to, min I like to try to minimize, at least in my practice, I try to minimize those sorts of things. But in, in particular, I try to advise patients to do the safest thing they can. Um, and um, unfortunately, you know, the question is, is it safer to get a facelift, you know, is it, is it safer from a, from a risk standpoint to have a whole facelift and blepharoplasty as opposed to just getting an injection, you know, like a filler or something? And the answer is, you know, 
probably, it's hard to know. I don't know if that study's ever been done, but it's certainly cheaper to get injections, and it seems like it's lower risk. And it probably, you know, my, my gut feeling is it probably is lower risk for overall, but it still can cause problems. MacU Health, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. Since you brought up styes, what can people do to prevent themselves from getting styes or when the sty is no longer infected and it becomes a chalazium, which is kind of that hard cyst, that hard bump on the eye? Uh, talk about what they can do to prevent it and what happens when they get one. What should they do? Well, I mean, also, I'll take one step back, which to say is that styes, um, what, are, what a sty is, is a, is, a, is a clogged gland, a clogged oil gland. And that clogged oil gland, actually, is that the fact that you have clogged glands actually is part of dry eye disease. So that's very apropos to this conversation. Because when you have dry eyes, often it is because the oil glands are not producing, or they're not, they're not delivering oil to the lid margin, health lubrication, and so forth. And so what, um, but, so that's sort of, so like you have all these different types of styes where you can get like a, the, the lid margin itself um, can be irritating. In fact, I just posted, by the way, just as a little plug for my website, www.fishmanvision.com. I have a, a blog and I often put on a lot and also have a YouTube channel, uh, Dr. Harv. I chat with Dr. Harv and uh, on my YouTube channel, I actually post really cool with patient consent, of course, with no identifying information on who the patient is. But I actually have you know videos of, of different things. I just did a a Chalazian, sorry, I did a, a Horiolum where I expressed it and I, uh, I curataged it. But in any case, and that's really a fun thing to watch if you, if you get a chance. But what I was going to say is that, the, you know, the main thing about ch Chalazian size, which is fascinating, is because the oil glands in the lid margin are, um, they're actually almost like, it's very much like a biosen a biosensor or a, a sensor for your overall health. And what I find is that the skin um, you know, just like when you break out, when you have a, um, you know, when you have a breakout on your skin, um, very much people have breakouts on the skin and have a, get a chalazian. And why do you break out on your skin? Well, it could be stress. Literally, it could be just having a lot of stress in your life. It can be, obviously, if you're, if the microbiome of your skin changes and you have all these issues with, um, you know, like environmental dust and allergens. So what can happen is when that, when that homeostasis which is controlling the, the oils in your lid margin kind of get off, then you can get this, this oils actually can, um, bacteria can get in there, but more importantly, the viscosity, the, how, how thick the oils are can change. And a lot of times that's systemic. So the answer to your question is that to prevent these things from occurring, um, it's like, it's just, you know, sort of like healthy, healthy living. Um, one thing is that some people are prone to size, and so keeping the lid margin clean is extremely important. And we, you know, we use all sorts of different products. Um, something as simple as like a, a washcloth with a little bit of soap on it, um, just clean off your lashes. And that could be something that can help, although that can be irritating. Soaps tend to be irritating. So they have more sophisticated products on the market uh, where they're a little bit more pH friendly to the eye. Uh, my favorite, and I don't have any uh, financial association with, uh, with Avanova, but Avanova is actually one of my favorite um, forms. It's a, it's a very mild and pH balanced form of hypochlorous acid. You can get a lot of different types of hypochlorous acid, um, but uh, I draw or I, uh, lid spray, spray, but that one I find is the most mild for my, for my patients. 
Um, and then, you know, when you, when you, you know, making sure that you're eating well uh, can, can definitely uh, be an important, um, can be a very important um, aspect to try to keep them um, uh, clean. Uh, the gut, you know, often you'll, you'll have a blowout week in Vegas. Uh, I've never had one of those, uh, but uh, some people who do, uh, actually, I probably have at some point in my career, but, um, but, you know, you come back and they get size. And, you know, is it because they're on a lot of dirty surfaces and they're touching their eyes, which you do a lot, um, you know, uh, that could be it. It could just be the overall, you know, your immune function gets depleted. So it's a, so it's a very complex problem. Once you get a size, the, um, you know, really our, our hordeolum or, or a chalazium, whatever we call it, there are a couple different names for it actually have to do with where in the lid it gets um, and what, which particular gland, which part of the gland and the age of it. So that's, you know, again, I actually have, a, I think on my YouTube channel, I, I discussed that a little bit. I'll probably do a blog on that because it's kind of nerdy and interesting to me. But, um, but once you get one, you know, the, the sort of the standard process is, is to melt the lard. One of my colleagues said, you got to melt the lard, Harvey. And, the, and the, the, the oils in the gland are just a form of oil. And if you can, if you can heat it, and clean the lid, that sometimes goes away. That's a great way of getting rid of it. If it doesn't go away, um, one of the things you can do is there are you know, eye drops that we can use that actually reduce the uh, inflammation. You can use a steroid eye drop, which I am not particularly psyched about doing in my practice. I tend to try to treat the underlying disease, which is usually it's a, it's a you know, it's like a little infection in the gland. The other thing is it could just be, you know, you, you, you can get an eye drop, uh, like a zithromycin eye drop to actually reduce the, the, the thickness of the oil secretion, and that's another way of treating it. Um, you know, one of the cool things I'm doing in my office is I'm doing a Chalazian study with IPL, intense pulse light. So I'm actually running an IRB uh, uh, an IRB study. Well, it's all studies should be IRB, um, and my study is to look at using intense pulse light to treat Chalazia and early cordiola. And uh, intense pulse light is phenomenally interesting. Um, and I know I, I came to all docs, we lectured on that. But the thing about, the thing about Chalazia is that, uh, is that with IPL, it's a, it's a non-pharmacologic and a non-incisional way of, of, of treating the Chalazia. And that's really helpful. Not too many people do it because, you know, IPLs are not cheap. And it's an expensive, you know, procedure, but it, it, I think it's worth you know, doing because of the fact that it's, um, it, it can really get you into a, a much more comfortable and cosmetically good, you don't have to cut the glands, which is actually the, the, one of the things that we do if it's, you know, sort of standard treatment is to, uh, as I mentioned, either to inject with steroids, which I really hate, or you can, um, or you can just flip the lid, numb up the lid, flip the lid, incise the gland and drain it, like you're draining, uh, like you're draining an abscess. And so those are how, that's how we treat it. Uh, I try to do, I mean, I'm really, as I'm getting more experience, you know, not experience, I'm going to say as I get older, I hate saying that, but, you know, as I get lo lo further, all, further along I go in my career, the more I realize it's like less is more when it comes to medicine. If you can do less to achieve the same results, that's a better way of doing it. And that's why I like IPL, but the price tag, which isn't cheap, is something that's a little bit um, uh, an issue. IPL or intense pulse laser, how does that get rid of the sty? So intense pulse light has a variety of different mechanisms that, that they propose uh, is the mechanism. One is that, you know, we, we actually take that light, 
guide and we actually are treating it and it gets pretty hot internally so it's a little bit like nuking it with a microwave <laughs> and so with a with a with a um when you have a uh you know when you have a uh a washcloth you're not really able to heat it internally but this thing is almost like in, internally heating that thing uh that sty or it's lazy and it, and it really starts to activate a lot of healing processes um, because of the fact that you're using light, there are um, these different immune, you're actually stimulating the immune system to actually start reorganizing the tissue. And one of the problems with chalazian or sty is that, um, is that the, 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 you get scar tissue that forms in there around the oil. And um, one of the things that IPL intense pulse light is, is actually pretty good at is actually it can, it can actually be used to, to reduce scars even just skin scars, scars on your skin, scars on your eyelid margin. And the, the, the scars, uh, so there's probably, there's some reorganization of the collagen that occurs. We know that actually when you, when you, when you, when you shine, when you, when you, um, when you hit the, the skin, when you, when you treat the skin with these, these pulses of light, you actually stimulate collagen reorganization. And that is, probably why it works to some extent. Now, the other thing that's interesting is when we do it, we, we use this protocol, the dry eye protocol, where I go along the lid margin like this, um, and actually even on the upper lid. And so one of the things that I just wrote a paper on, another little plug, is I just got a paper published on, on this critter called Demodex, which is a parasite that lives, and everybody has it, everybody has it in their lid margin. Uh, but IPL actually kills this parasite, so it reduces the population. And I know this is not about the microbiome. We'll eventually do a talk on it. I'm, like, I'm really excited to do that with you at some point. But the microbiome of your lid, of your skin, actually uh, almost definitely changes when you do IPL. That could be why a lot of patients do better because you're, 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 you're changing the intrinsic uh, microbiome of the skin, the lashes, and then that also may contribute to uh, an anti-inflammatory effect. So there's a lot of things that go into why IPL seems to be beneficial, not only the direct heat that occurs, but the collagen reorganization, the immune system getting stimulated through a variety of different um, um, tech, you know, at the nuclear transcriptional level um, inside the cells and um, the microbiome of the skin. So those are just a few concepts that, that may be very important for why IPL works. But it's a very cool technique, and I've just been very interested in it. As I said, we just had a paper uh, that was published, um, and you can find that on my website as well, which actually shows the first time of a direct IPL, intense pulse light kill, of a, of, a, of a micro, of a parasite, you know, we actually show it, where we, we actually, you know, pulse the light on the parasite and kills it in like four or five pulses. Really neat stuff. It's amazing how many people have these parasites living on their eyelashes and they, they have no idea that they have them. I guess part of it could be part of the microbiome, but when it gets out of control, you could actually pull out an eyelash, put it under a microscope, and you'd see the critter with its mouth going, opening and closing and opening and closing. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, um, I do that in my office where I'll extract the lash and I'll show them under the microscope and the patient, you know, is both horrified and amused at the same time. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I think that one thing that's important for everybody to know is that, you know, we have, a, we have, a, 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 you know, the microbiome is so fascinating. I, I really, truly believe the microbiome is going to be sort of the next frontier medicine. 
um, and once we really understand it, which we don't. Uh, but, and I know this is not a microbiome talk, but just to say that, you know, we live, you know, there's something like, you know, there's something like hundreds of millions of different bacteria that live in our gut. There are, you know, hundreds or, you know, millions of different species that live on our skin and around our eyes. And, and it's both bacteria and viruses and parasites. And a lot of times, you know, these, all of these critters sort of live there. We're in sort of a homo, you know, homeostatic, you know, scenario. Like when oils get produced, you want some of those oils to be eaten up. And those, and that's what some of these Demodex uh, critters do. These parasites are actually helpful because, you know, it actually helps eat some of the oil, excess oils off your lashes and your lid margin. And so you really do want these things. It's not like you don't want, you don't want to sterilize all the parasites. But like everything, just like, you know, we talk about dysbiosis of the gut where you have a, uh, a ratio of good versus bad, you know, bacteria that's in your colon. Same thing happens with, um, with your eyelashes. And so these critters are, are, you know, if they're too high in population, they actually can puke up inflammatory bacteria. It turns out these parasites actually have their own digestive tract. Uh, and uh, they puke it up or they die. And actually the, the parasite itself, the cell, the cell wall and the cell components of the parasite itself are very inflammatory, can cause dry eye and various forms of dry eye disease. But uh, so, so, you know, keeping them in the right proportion is really important. And so, and that's, you know, very fascinating. You know, again, we're getting into different areas, but it's really exciting when you think about, you know, what, where it's exciting because Medicine is really, it, it's always evolving and, and we're just really scratching the surface of the microbiome. And as I said, we're, you know, there's such, there's such exciting research that's actually being pumped by NIH, the Human Microbiome Project, and the microbiome projects around the world. I mean, it's just, it really is the future, uh, which actually, full circle, which is another reason I got interested in dry eye disease, what we talked about initially, was that I was fascinated by, what, which I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, um, was that you know we when I when some patients not all uh, start taking fish oil, of course you need to talk to your doctor before you do anything, um, you know to get that checked, make sure you're okay with taking fish oil. Um, but if you take fish oil, there's a good portion who actually do better. And I hypothesize that that's actually, and I wrote a blog about this just recently. Uh, why is there this huge disparity between some of the there's a double-blinded clinical study known as the DREAM study, which basically found that it was, you know, that it was totally ineffective. It was a bunch of nonsense. And there are a lot of people out there who think fish oil is a bunch of nonsense for, uh, you know, for, for dry eye disease. But uh, my theory is, and, and I'm actually going to hopefully do a clinical trial pretty, pretty you know, soon on this, is that it, it, it shifts your microbiome. And we know absolutely the microbiome of the gut does have huge impact on dry eye disease. And we know that, that, um, that when you have a higher biodiversity of the gut, your dry eye patients tend to be, there tend to be less dry eye patients. And that was actually a study that, a very, uh, a sort of a pilot study that I did and published an article in ARVO. Uh, I had a poster on that at the ARVO, the big meeting. And then there's, of course, some really famous dry people who've done it with uh, really hardcore studies. There's a nature paper, a science paper on this by, um, uh, some really famous, uh, you know, cornea specialists. But we know that the microbiome of the gut affects dry eye disease, and we know that, um, and we and, and a lot of clinical 
uh, a dry eye specialist like myself, uh, you know, have seen dramatic results with dry eye as a primary therapy. And so I suspect that that's the connection, but we need to really flesh that out. But it's really interesting because nutrition studies are notoriously difficult. Um, and, you know, fish, fish oil is just another, you're basically treating it with, with you know, you're treating patients with, with food. And, um, you know, and, and you have like very heated discussions. But, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the jury is definitely not, it's still out on that one. Yeah, I think in the dream study, they were comparing olive oil against fish oil. And people, olive oil could, you know, could be anti-inflammatory as well. So people did well in both parts of the, in the olive oil group and in the fish oil group. And typically in dry eye, it's, if you increase the EPA as a burst the, the, the DHA, the more EPA, the more anti-inflammatory uh, type of reaction you get. And typically you get for dry eye, if the EPA to DHA is three to one, and I think in the dream study it was only two to one. So there are still, there are other studies uh, on omega-3s that people do actually do pretty well. But I want to ask you a question about that bug, that Demodex. Uh, yeah. If somebody has that, well, how do you treat that? those bugs on your eye, those mites, how do you treat that since we talked about it? Right, so, you know. How do we get rid of those things? I don't want those but, things crawling on my eye. <laughs> I mean, I don't think that you need to, <clears throat> again, you don't want to get rid of all of them. You just want to lower the population. So it's really a titrate. You want to titrate the level so that it's not causing um, pathology. Um, you know, one of the things that's terrific is tea, tea tree oil. I think that tea tree oil does a fantastic job at, job at controlling it. And, you know, it's not just- How do you, how do you, apply, how do you apply it on the eye? How do you recommend so, they apply it? And, and how do you do lid scrubs? How do you do yeah, lid scrubs? Right, what I usually tell people is that, you know, first of all, I, I, I recommend treating the face. It's like the smoking and not smoking section back in the 70s. It's like the smoke drifts, drifts over. So you have, you know, the Demodex often is on your face. So I always say, that you start off with a, a tea tree oil facial scrub that works. Um, and then you can get these special lid scrub um, uh, versions of, of tea tree oil. And they are they can be pretty irritating to the eye. They don't hurt the eye. They're not damaging the eye, but they're very irritating. And so I usually, when I tell, the way I explain it to people is that you take a little bit of the lid scrub and you kind of like drape it just below the lash margin on the bottom and the top of the lid without actually getting in your eye. And what happens is the tea tree oil actually will diffuse um, into the lashes and hopefully smother some of the, um, the Demodex. Now that's one way that I do it. You can also just maintenance, keeping the lashes clean. It doesn't have to be, you know, Clearidex. It doesn't have to be like tea tree oil. Um, Clearidex is what I traditionally use, but I'm, 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 they haven't been, it's, uh, it's, it's, there are other versions that are also quite good. There are other, you know, um, there are other brands. Um, and again, I have no, you know, I'm not wed to any one brand, uh, but um, you can also just, you can also use hypochlorous acid, again, get back to what I mentioned before. And that's another thing that can keep, kind of keep, and, 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 you know, keeping it, that basically, that may or may not directly kill the demon X, but it lowers the bacterial content of the lid margin. And how do you recommend they use the hypochlorous acid or the Avanova? Yeah, so, so, so the Avanova can be actually, you can actually, Close your lid and spray it directly on your eye. Uh, close your eye, sorry, close your eyes, spray it directly on your face, and then take it like one of the circular cotton discs 
that you can get at the drugstore and then just kind of, you know, rub it. I mean, that's the easiest way of doing it. You can also spray it on the, on the, on the little cotton disc and then you can use that to, to um, apply that directly on the, on the lid. Um, you know, some people who are, you know, really good about cleaning their eyelashes, they can spray it on a cotton tip and they can take a cotton tip and they can go along their lid margin. Obviously you're, you're closer to your eye when you do that. You have to be careful. You don't give yourself a corneal scratch or anything like that. Wouldn't rec necessarily recommend that unless you're experienced on, and, and been trained how to do that appropriately. But that's how I usually recommend um, the tea tree oil, the, the you know the hypochlorous acid, keeping the face clean, and then you know that those are the best ways of really treating Demonex. Um, that <clears throat> there are some medicines you could use. Um, for instance, you can take an oral medicine called ivermectin, which is a prescription uh, medicine that gets rid of it. There's a lot of studies that show that as well. Um, and you know, and, and, and actually some of the treatments that we do for rosacea, there's, there's a huge rosacea demonex connection and treating facial rosacea also as a way of treating the demonex. And so, so, yeah. Talk about rosacea, what it is and how it relates to the eye. Yeah, so rosacea is a vascularization. Um, it, it's, it, it's, a, it's where you have these little micro, they're called telangiectetic vessels, micro vessels that get inflamed and, and cause inflammation and rosy. It's like you get rosy cheeks, you get rosy nose. I have some till you, I have some on my nose. Um, it's, it's generally, uh, it's not limited to people from Ireland and Northern Europe and so forth. You can have a large Asian population, they can get rosacea as well. Um, but it's generally more fair-skinned people that get it, uh, but not limited to that. And uh, what happens is that um, when you get the, when you have this on your face, um, it actually causes there to be, um, it, it, you know, there, there, there does seem to be a connection between high levels of, of Demodex and high levels of, of um, rosacea. It seems that the, the blood vessels get inflamed or they get super inflamed from, um, you know, from the, from the inflammation secondary to the Demodex. And so one of the ways that we treat Demodex Excuse me. One of the ways we treat rosacea uh, is we treat it by, you know, is we treat it by using tea tree oil to get rid of the demodex, and so that's a big part of, you know, treating. And actually, if you look at some of the, you know, some of the more naturopathic treatments for rosacea, it, all, it always comes back to the gut. If you treat the gut, you you can reduce again. Remember, I mentioned the whole part about your face breaks out with with um, rosacea with different foods that you eat. So your rosacea break. We we know 100 percent, you know, rosacea breakout with alcohol or different foods you eat or spicy foods, that is absolutely, you know, we see that all the time. And so, you know, really being controlling the diet helps treat, you know, really, you know, treat the rosacea. Um, and so that, that's sort of at the fundamental level. And then, you know, obviously you can come into my office and other, you know, offices where you can actually use, um, again, intense pulse light and other types of, there's also something called P PDL, which is pulse dye uh, uh, laser. And um, that also can be used to um, um, treat rosacea. And there are like, there's metrogel, which is metronidazole, which is another, another drug that can treat rosacea. And then there's, um, you know, as I said, ivermectin and so forth. And sort of this combination between Demodex and, and faith. Uh, and and, and uh, rosacea. It's very 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 fascinating. Again, you know, rosacea is, is, is not well. We know it's an inflammatory condition of the skin. And by the way, full circle, people who have rosacea often get 
dry eye disease because the glands in their eyelid margin get, you know, diseased and, and affected. I think you make a great point because people that have rosacea, they're kind of, one of the first things I look at is somebody's skin. And if they have rosacea, you know that their health isn't where it should be and that they need to work on their lifestyle, their diet. And you talk about that a lot. Tell us about how the eye could be a biomarker to your health. Right. I mean, you know, it's funny, Terry, should bring that up because um, as, I, as I get more as I, as I progress in my career, the more, the more I see, you know, about the more I see patients and the, the more experienced and, and more, you know, experiences you have with patients, you, you really see how the eyes, you know, that, the, that any kind of eye problem or any problem for that matter is, 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 often, is often systemically driven. And so, for instance, there are some really interesting studies which show that Patients with high, actually there was a paper that came out showed hyperlipidemia, meaning patients with high cholesterol levels or wrong, they actually have more glandular atrophy in their lid margin. So you can actually, so again, it's like using the, uh, the mybobian gland measurements. And actually we do, you know, we do mybography, which is infrared imaging of the, of the lid margin. You, you can actually see evidence of systemic disease in the eye. And then, you know, and so it, it, to your point, that the eye really is a phenomenal organ to, to, to look at systemic disease. And that's a whole nother, you know, discussion, but it, it really is a biosensor for the rest of your body. I mean, um, you're, you know, your people often, as I said, will get size and chalazine and dry eye secondary to systemic disease. Uh, hypothyroidism, for instance, is often associated with dry eye disease. And, um, you know, obviously some of the iatrogenic things that we do to our bodies, right, or that we do to our uh, systemic health, like if you're on a blood pressure medicine and you dry the patient out, you know, often that is a, you know, we see dry eye disease and that can be, a, 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 you know, a signal that they're, that they're, for instance, too medicated. It could be that, they're, that the medicine that you're using to, to lower the blood pressure is too extreme and they get dry eye disease from that. Um, it also can be, you know, obviously a sign of allergies and you can have allergies to anything. So it's fascinating how if you really are a good clinician and you look at the eyes, you can make a lot of connections if you're, if you're really a good listener and a good observer. Um, and I can tell you that's something that, you know, we can all do better at, me included. Um, I, but, you know, one of my goals for 2020 year 2020 is to even listen better and to be a better listener and to be a better, you know, observer of, of subtle signs in the eyes and to then link that to systemic disease. Um, but you're right. It's very fascinating. And, you know, you know, obviously there's so many different aspects of dry eye and an ocular surface that's just totally very much connected to the systemic, the systemic disease, um, you know, autoimmune disease. A lot of times people will get dry eye, and it's absolutely connected to autoimmune disease. It can be Sjogren's, it can be uh, lupus, it can be a variety of different things. So you can see a lot of signs of systemic disease. Uh, and in particular, dry eye can be a very big biosensor, a very telling biosensor for, you know, for your systemic health. You tell that great story how you saved somebody's life from being over-medicated on yeah. blood medicine uh, and because and it caused dry eye tell that story yeah I mean it, it's, a, it's a really good story <clears throat> you know 
it's very, you know, internal medicine docs want to lower the, if you have a high blood pressure, there's sort of like a lot of them think lower is better, like as low as you can go, okay? And obviously, it's like the Goldilocks principle. You don't want it too hot, you know, the porridge. You don't want it too hot, you don't want it too cold, you want it just right. And low blood pressure is not great because then you're also losing perfusion to your brain. Um, and high blood pressure has the same problem. And, and by the way, low blood pressure, not, we're not talking about glaucoma, but, but, but low blood pressure is a, is a risk factor for glaucoma um, and other probably other neurodegenerative diseases of the body. But the, the story that I tell is like the patient comes in with very dry eye and the, you know, you, 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 grit, you talk to them, you, 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 why, you know, why all of a sudden you have all these dry symptoms? And it turns out that their cardiologist or internist, you know, added additional medicine to their, uh, their, their blood pressure regimen. They, they, the doctor thought it was too high. So they gave them medicine and now their blood pressure, um, the, there's so much, you know, low blood pressure lowering medicine that their eyes dry out but, but what we find out is that is that you know and they haven't really mentioned is that when they get up really quickly they get orthostatic hypotension meaning that their, their blood pressure is so low that they get lightheaded too easy so the conversation and the, the story is that you know if you if, if they come in because of dry eye you would tell the patient inform the patient hey you know you're on this maybe you need to go back to talk to your internist that you're over medicated that your blood pressure is way too low and that could actually save their life because, uh, you know, if, if an elderly person has a, a blood pressure too low and they get up too quickly or they get lightheaded, they can easily fall over and faint. That happens all the time. And now if, if you fall and you faint, you can hit your head, you can get a subdural hematoma, and you, you, could, you could die or you could have a significant, uh, you know, disability. Uh, or you could break your hip. And then that could be the beginning of, of, of really bad problems in your life. So it's, it's interesting that by just looking, just hearing that somebody, you know, says, you know sometimes they'll say it kind of casually, because it's not like necessarily a big deal. They can say, you know, I, I've noticed my eyes are a little drier. And if you're really smart, you go through the medicine list really carefully, and you find out that they, they're over-medicated. So by telling them this, they go back to their internist, they adjust the medicine, and you could actually save their life. And it's a very small example of where the eyes really are a biosensor for the entire body. So let's, let's as we wrap up here, let's talk about the treatment for dry eye. And let's go through the spectrum of treatment. People with mild symptoms, and we don't see any autoimmune diseases, nothing very, very serious, other than their eyes are a little bit dry. Uh, how would you treat that patient looking for the cause of what the dry eye is, maybe some of the techniques you use to help diagnose it as well. Right. I mean, I think that the, the, biggest, the biggest challenge in dry eye disease is really understanding what the etiology is. So it's like what you said, you know, basically the first thing you have to figure out is like, why are their eyes dry? Why are they having symptoms? Um, is it the anatomy? Okay. Is it that they recently had a blepharoplasty and their lids are too low and then they have overnight dryness. So a lot of times just simply, you know, suggesting overnight techniques to uh, keep their eyes lubricated is important. Um, sometimes it has to do with they have rosacea, as we pointed out, and then demodex, so they have like more of a, a vat, like a conjunctivitis, and then you have to treat the demodex, and that's the reason why their eyes are dry or irritated. Then 
uh, you know, obviously correcting any systemic medicine that might be taking. You have to look at the skin. Um, then you have to kind of look at the, you know, the tear volume. One of the things that we do in my office is I look at the volume of tears using uh, anterior segment optical co coherence tomography so I can very accurately measure how much tears. So if their tears are low, um, then you can use various techniques to increase it. Some people suggest you can use things like restasis and, and, and drops that can increase tear production, uh, or you can use, you can actually use punctal plugs. You can use, you can plug up the, uh, up the ducts with that or with cautery, and that sometimes can be very helpful. Um, there's a new device on the market called TrueTear, which is a, a stimulator, nasal stimulator, and that can actually cause more lacrimal gland you know, tearing. So if it's too low in tears, those are some techniques you can use. Um, if it's a oil problem where you know, they're not producing enough oils and, they have a, and then their tears are very unstable, you can um, use a variety of different thermal, thermal pulsation techniques. Um, I have a new device in my, I, my office from Alcon called Ilux, and it's supposed, it will stimulate, it will, it will heat and, and expresses the gland simultaneously. I also use another device called Mibo Thermoflow, which is a heating pad, a very precise heating pad that we put on the eyelids and then I manually express it. Um, those are ways. Lipoflow is another one. There's a variety of different devices. And then, of course, you know, there are, and those are, you know, those are different mechanisms. Sometimes, um, you know, the thing about drops, um, eye drops, I kind of feel, and I'm probably going to get assassinated by the pharmaceutical companies on this, Terry, is that I do kind of feel that all, a lot of drops are kind of a patch. Um, restasis, lipidograph, steroids, you're basically cutting the inflammatory pathway and it can be very helpful symptomatically, but you're not necessarily treating the underlying disorder. With that being said, you know, I do think you need to use sometimes different drops that actually are anti-inflammatory. You really want to be very cautious about steroids, but you can use things like lipidographs, restasis, which actually sort of cuts the inflammatory pathway. Remember that just because you're interfering with the inflammatory pathway and dry eye disease, you're not necessarily fixing the eye, you're just masking symptoms. So I, I think it's very important to, for, to work on lifestyle changes, diet, anatomy, those sorts of things. So the answer is that there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on um, to treat dry eye disease. And I think you need a really care, you need time. You need, it's not something you can just rush somebody in and out for 10, 15 minutes in a chair. You gotta spend time with them. You have to use a lot of devices. You can, you know, and you have to put the whole picture together. So that's, that's sort of how I approach it. It's not, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world because it's so complex. Everybody has different, you know, types of anatomy and different genetics and different diet and different environments. And, and you know, there's a whole bunch of different, you know, things that go into making, figuring out exactly what their problem is and on top of that, how to treat it. But if you do that, you can make, and, and, and you can sort of make the patient more comfortable and you can hopefully prevent them from having lifelong problems. You mentioned before about my 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 biography to look at the glands in in the eye to see if any of them have fallen out or any of them are twisted. Uh, you look at the you look you use OCT to look at the tear film. Is there any other special technology that you use? Um, I, I just bought a confocal microscope, so I actually oh. can look at the corneal. Yeah, that's kind of a a real heady thing. Can you look I think. at the nerves. Can you see the corneal nerves with that? Yeah, you can see the corneal nerves. You can actually. Uh, measure the mybobian gland orifices. That's something you could do. Um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of techniques you can use to measure it. There's also like, you can measure with osmolality, you can measure the salt content. Um, 
There's a nice uh, test where you can actually measure what's called the matrix metalloproteinases, which are these MMP9, uh, which are these uh, inflammatory um, proteases that actually eats up tissue. And so you, if, you, if you measure that, you can see how much inflammation is in, in the eye. So those are some techniques you can, obviously good slit lamp exam where you, where you use different dyes to state parts of the eye. Um, I actually also use high-speed videography in my office to look at blink dynamics. So there's, yeah, those are some of the things you can do. And uh, you just have to get a little you know, picture. You know, do you think you, people could really improve their blinking? You know, that's really fascinating. Uh, the answer is I often, it's really hard. Um, and I often tell people, I advise mindful blinking. And there are a bunch of apps. But the answer is very difficult. Sometimes you, you know, if they have an exposure problem or they have a blink problem, you know, you have to, you may, you may have to maybe like a special type of glass, you know, goggles, glasses that actually blocks all the environment. Some of my patients basically say these things are hideous to wear. Um, you can also go with like scleral lenses, special contact lenses that uh, protect your corneas. So the answer is, I think you can, I think my patients who have worked on mindful blinking um, do report back that it does help, but it's incredibly difficult because, you know, you, have some, you need some reminders. And people with that very severe dry eye and you use scleral lenses, how well do they work? Um, when scleral, what is a scleral lens and how, how does it work and how good does it work? Yeah, so the scleral lens has been around for 20, 30 years. It was actually um, developed uh, in Boston initially, um, uh, or they popularized there. There's a whole clinic called the Pros Clinic in Boston, Boston site. Uh, what it is, is it's the old uh, gas permeable lens, but they made it huge. And it actually vaults over, it doesn't even touch your cornea, it literally vaults over the entire eye. And there are these huge lenses and you fill it up with fluid. So it's like your eye is filled all day with this, this uh, fluid, this healthy fluid. And these lenses, when fit correctly and um, positioned correctly, it can be a lifesaver. I mean, they really are. In, in many cases, a very incredible option for, for severe dry eye disease. And, and um, you know, the, the challenge is that, first of all, not everybody can put them in. The second challenge is that even when they, they seem to be fit correctly, they, 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 don't feel, they don't feel well to the patient. They don't feel comfortable. So, um, you know, because some people just don't like anything on their eye at all. So, you know, so, but for, for, for a subset of patients, you know, where we do it in our office, and I, again, I use a lot of imaging devices, OCT, to like look at the vault and how the cornea, you know, how it vaults over the cornea and all these different things, um, and how it lands on the, on the eye itself. Those things, you know, if it fit well, there's a huge number of my patients who do really well with them. Uh, but not all. Not everybody can put it in their eye. Not everybody feels comfortable with them. But in, in, a, some, in, a, certain sub, in a certain group of patients, it is absolutely a life changer. Well, I want to thank Dr. Harvey Fishman. He's a wealth of information. We covered a lot of ground. We did a lot of topics. And I really want to thank you for sharing your expertise. Uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, wants to learn more about you, let, let us know about your 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 new web show uh four eyes that we're doing together let us know about again your 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 podcasts and your your google shows and your uh youtube channel yeah well thanks a lot carrie this has been a lot of fun i absolutely love 
hanging out with you. You to, you are an uh, inspiration to me, and I, I I will I you know I've really become much more interested in, in the holistic side of medicine because of you, and 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 our friendship. But uh, to reach me, um, I have a, a, a fun website which I do a lot of updates on www.fishmanvision.com. Um, I have a YouTube channel called uh, iChat with Dr. Harv, um, and uh, where I post some of the videos of some of the lectures I've done. Uh, I also have a Twitter handle. It's uh, at, at drfishman, one word, at drfishman. And I also have a, uh, a I have a uh, Instagram channel called Fishman Vision. So those are different ways you can get to me. And uh, I also do some telemedicine visits, especially if you're in California. Um, and that's a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great. I mean, my goal, like yours, Carrie, is to is to not just treat patients in my office, but to try to educate people because I can do and write papers and be, you know, do these things that I can help people beyond just my own, you know, tiny little Palo Alto office and sphere. But I really appreciate the invite, and you are a great guy. Uh, I am so excited about what you're doing with Open Your Eyes. I'm excited about. I mean, that is just a phenomenal film. But what you've done for uh, for the for the work for vision and the world of uh, you know optometry and ophthalmology is phenomenal. Uh, and then of course I'm super psyched about our our upcoming uh, you know uh, video channel called Four Eyes, which is going to be a lot of fun, where we do a lot of fun videos and describe a lot of the stuff that we do. I think it's going to be a great time. 2020 is going to be a great year, and moving ahead, we're going to have a lot of fun educating people and and helping people stamp out dry, you know, stamp out eye disease. Well, thanks so much, Dr. Fishman. Okay. Thank you. Take care. Bye. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. 
so many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you could screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball, and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please open their eyes? Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.